This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show is an interview with Chief Economist at the Australia Institute and author Dr Richard Dennis. Richard joined me to talk about his newly updated book, Econobabble, How to Decode Political Spin and Economic Nonsense. Richard describes Econobabble as the incomprehensible economic jargon politicians and commentators use to dress up their self-interest as the national interest, as well as to make the absurd seem inevitable or the inequitable seem fair. Then, Goongara Environment Centre campaigner Chris Sharinga joined me to discuss the Save Erinundra campaign, as well as the latest developments in the quest to prevent native forest logging in East Gippsland's forests. Many of these forests were severely burnt in the 2019 and 2020 bushfires. Then, finally, art historian and author Janine Burke joined me to explore the themes from her new book, My Forests. Travels with Trees. Janine's book looks at trees in art, myth, history and everyday life. We also discuss Janine's professional career supporting women artists in Australia. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins. It's great to be with you this Tuesday morning. We're going to be chatting with Dr. Richard Dennis, who is joining me once more on the show to talk about his newly revised book, Econobabble, How to Decode Political Spin and Economic Nonsense. It's out through Black Ink, uh, I guess, once again out through Black Ink, and uh, it was originally released, I believe, in 2015 and has been thoroughly updated with some very useful and relevant uh, stories and facts, including the coronavirus pandemic, as well as uh, the coalition government's, um, I guess, complete change from being uh, allergic to debt and deficit to somehow embracing it completely. So I can't wait to welcome Richard now and to also um, say thank you for coming back onto the program. Hi there, Richard, and how are you? Good morning. Very well, thanks. And a foggy, foggy Canberra. Yeah. Well, um, I was just quite surprised to hear that the visibility is uh, pretty much zero. Uh, yes, I hope no one's trying to fly to Canberra today because <laughs> I'm confident in saying your plane will be late. That's funny. Well, uh, we did see on the news, if anyone was watching the, the news last night, that uh, the journalists were greeting the politicians coming into Canberra. Um, actually, I think it was Sunday night, wasn't it, um, for the sitting week? And uh, there's going to be obviously a lot going on, and there has been a lot going on in Canberra since the budget, um, and a lot of of discussion about the coalition and whether they have somehow become a labour light, uh, which is a little bit amusing, I think, to or maybe not amusing to <laughs> labour people. Um, so, first of all, Richard, I thought maybe we could just um, touch on the budget and then bring in your book and the themes of your book, uh, Econobabble. But first up, I really am dying to know what your take on the budget is, given that uh, we've heard so much of the mainstream media embrace it and to say how positive it has been, uh, although obviously with some caveats to say that, for example, in aged care, not enough was done. But um, it kind of seems that a lot of people have become quite grateful when anything is done. 
<laughs> well, it's all about expectation management, isn't it? I yeah. mean, you know, let's be clear. This this government was elected eight years ago promising to repay the debt and fix the budget emergency we were in. Uh, let me just choose my words carefully here. We've been lied to for a decade about the problems Australia faces by this government. We were just flat out lied to. Now, the best news in the budget is that the biggest lies have stopped. So, you know, hooray, pop the champagne corks. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it is good that the government abandoned the idea that the small budget deficits that we'd been delivering were a big problem, that the amount of debt we'd accumulated was a big problem, uh, and that the one thing we needed to do to get the country on track was deliver a budget surplus. That is an enormous U-turn from this government, uh, and they should be congratulated for making it. But at the same time, we should never forget who it was that was driving in the wrong direction for so long, you know, so fast, so enthusiastically, so confidently. You know, you can just imagine being in the car with your dad saying, you're going the wrong way, you're going the wrong way. You drive the wrong way for eight years, he finally does a U-turn and says, where's my praise? Um, so, so, yeah, big picture, the government abandoned the lie that the small budget deficits that we had and the small amount of public debt we had, and I mean small by historic standards, I mean small by international standards, I mean small from economic, from most economists, actual economists' point of view, we've stopped worrying about that. That's great. But is it a great budget? No, it's not, because, yep, we're spending a lot more money than we're planning to. That's good. Um, might seem ridiculous to say this, but we're not actually spending enough we had a whole royal commission into what the aged care sector needed, and the Treasurer's Office came up with uh, less than half of that. So was the royal commission wrong, or is Josh Frydenberg wrong? So is it good that he's spending half of what the royal commission said, or is it bad that he's spending half of what the royal commission said? I suppose it just depends how well you want your nan looked after. Um, so, yep, they've done a U-turn, great They've started spending money on things that they said they were going to spend less money on. Great. Have they gone far enough? Not even close. And, of course, what they've really done is they've, you know, they've, they've locked in enormous tax cuts for high-income earners that are, that are still coming after the next election. But that's the poison pill in this budget. Uh, and, as always, they're just like with climate change and everything else, they're just kicking the problem down the road. So... The tax cuts they're putting in are far more expensive than the new spending, but guess what we're talking about? <laughs> Small amounts of new spending, not the enormous tax cuts that go overwhelmingly to high-income earners. Yes, and I think a lot of the cynics out there would say that this big spending budget is perhaps more of a political tool, and as we know, a budget is a political tool, but that people have pointed to the fact that an election is semi-looming, it could be at the end of this year or at the beginning of next year, and that, uh, you know, pre it could be before the next budget in May uh, of 2022. So, do you think that is there any potential for this to be a kind of fluke or um, a rare moment of deciding to back back on austerity? Do you think there's any chance they might do an about face again? Uh, I think they'll do an about face. They, look, there's no doubt that post-election they'll they'll surprise themselves and say, oh, 
we didn't realise that locking in enormous tax cuts uh, and locking in uh, new spending uh, was locking us into very big deficits forever. Oh, that's not what we meant to do. We just did that to get us through the crisis. Should we wind back the tax cuts? No. Should we wind back the spending on poor people? Oh, I think we should, don't you? So, yeah, that's what's coming. Um, <laughs> it's crystal clear. Let's not be surprised. Uh, that, but that won't happen until after the next election. And, you know, that's, that's an opportunity for Labor, uh, I think, is to kind of ask the question, who do you actually trust to keep helping you then? You know, because yeah. these people are promising to help you then, but you reckon they mean it or you reckon they just want you to vote for you but, so they can stick around to implement tax cuts, which, to be clear, will give $9,000 a year $9,000 a year tax cuts to, to people earning 200000 bucks. How tidy is that? It's mm, enormous. And to be honest, I don't think anyone on two hundred grand really thinks that nine grand is something that they deserve, surely. Oh, you don't understand. It's not about deserve. <laughs> it's about incentive. It's about incentive. If we don't give the highest income people in the country a big pay rise, they won't keep working. Yeah. We actually have a whole economic story, <laughs> you know, to, to, to plug my book, a whole, a whole chapter on Econobabble in this story. And the story is it's not that I think rich people deserve the tax cuts. It's that if I give them tax cuts, they will work harder so we can grow the economy and this is this is literally trickle down economics, right? Yeah. We're going to give tax cuts to high income earners, and that'll make them work harder. Uh, and and when they spend all that money, they'll actually be helping us. They're doing us a favour. We're helping ourselves by helping them. And of course, here we are <laughs> with, with with pubs saying they can't find cleaners. Well, maybe offering them a higher wage would encourage more people to want to be a cleaner. Oh, no, 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 it only works at the top. Mm. It only works at the top. If high-income earners don't get a tax cut, they won't keep working hard, but we don't need to offer a wage rise or a big tax cut to low-income earners. We'll just sort of bitch and moan about, uh, about skill shortages and kind of blame the lazy unemployed. Yep. It is very convenient and it's so familiar. I know many people listening will have heard these kind of lines and uh, discussions and perhaps it's been packaged in a more polite way than the way we're talking about it. But that is the beauty of your book, Econobabble, because uh, it's not trying to be polite, it's just being direct and honest about the situation, <laughs> which is very refreshing. I always try to be polite. I always <laughs> try to be polite, but I don't think it's polite to lie to people. So. I agree. Uh, so, yes, I, I think I'm always polite, but I am at times blunt. I agree with that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I should rephrase. You're not. You're polite, but in the best way, not in a uh, way, not you. in the British way. Yeah. No, I'm only joking. I mean, look, yeah. it's, we need to have an honest, democratic conversation about what we want more of and what we want less of and who needs more money and who needs less money. This is not complicated, and it's not even economics, right? This is just what democracies are about. So in Sweden and Denmark and Norway and Finland, they don't offer enormous tax cuts to their highest income earners, 
and they do spend a lot more money than us on things like free childcare and free, there's no private health insurance. And they've made democratic choices that are similar to the choices that we made in Australia in the 80s, all right? But we changed our mind. Now, that's okay. There's nothing in the Constitution that says we have to be nice. There's nothing in the Constitution that says we need to help women get back into work. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that your nan shouldn't eat chicken nuggets six nights a week, all right? There's nothing in the Constitution that says how we should behave. We're one of the richest countries in the world. We can be like Sweden and Denmark and Finland if we want, or we can be a low-tax, low-spending country like America, you know, or a whole bunch of Southeast Asian countries, right? It's, there's, I, I, you know, I'm quite upfront about this in the book and in all of my talks. There's no right here. I know which I prefer. I know what I think is right, but it's a democracy. We have to make this choice. And if we're going to choose to give people earning 200 grand a tax cut and pretend that we don't have enough money uh, to, to, to help people in aged care or disability care, can we just can we strip away the polite concealment and just say it's not that we can't spend more money on aged care or disability care? We don't want to. Right? Yep. Just look ourselves in the mirror and say that. And if you don't like saying it, stop doing it. Exactly, and also say what you've said, which is we're going to give nine thousand dollars in tax cuts to people earning over two hundred grand. Um, Richard, you talk about econobabble, and you give us a bit of a definition. I feel like it's probably a great time to bring that in. So, you say the language of econobabble includes two things, incomprehensible economic jargon and apparently simple words that have been stripped of their normal meanings. <laughs> and you go on to say things like, you know, efficiency is an example. Um, and you say that, you also go on to say that economists aren't meant to tell us what is right or wrong or what we should do with something. They're meant to present us with options of here's what you could do, here are what the positives and the negatives are of each option. And it should be, in theory, up to the general population and the politicians who represent the population to make a decision and then, as you go on to say, to make a case to their constituents to say this is why we've made this decision. I mean, this all sounds really lovely and wonderful. Why and how does that not happen in real life? Because even on budget night, if anyone took a brief glance at the conversations with economists, everyone had an opinion about what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. Yeah. Oh, and let's be clear, as, as an economist, I didn't give up my citizenship rights to have a view about what I think is right and wrong. But what we need to be clear about is that that view is my view as a citizen. It's it's not the received wisdom of my scientific discipline. It's not. Right? There's not an economics textbook for sale in Australia that disagrees with what I'm saying. In fact, every economics textbook in Australia says the beautiful thing about economics is that economics is about how the world is, not how the world should be. Right, so we we say it's uh, it's it's you know that's that's the unique. We we actually teach students this. I'm not making it up. We say that economics is unique amongst the social sciences. All those other social sciences, a bit you know airy fairy with their hearts. Well, here in economics, we do the head stuff, right? We're we're the serious social scientists, and we do is not should. 
right? This is this is literally the first lesson in your first week of every economics class. We do is, not should. And by the end of the degree, every student's out there telling everyone what they should do. <laughs> you know, it's beautiful. It's the best propaganda you can imagine. Oh, no, it's a free, you know, we're into free markets and individual choice. You're all free to do what you want. Oh, I think we should pay more tax and spend more on my name. You can't do that. You can't. That will ruin the economy. No, it won't. Yes, it will. Right. So it's genius. Like, yeah. And, and it's literally abusive. Like, you know, it's <laughs> gaslighting in the extreme because we the whole time we're telling everyone what they should do, the whole time we're telling people what they should do, we tell them we're not doing, we're not telling them what they should do. It's genius. Yeah. It's worked for decades. But it doesn't work in other countries. Like, that's the thing. Like, this is not how Australia was always run and it's not how other countries are run. This is our choice. This is who we are. It does. And I want to bring in a, a really great quote from the book. You say, whether the econobabblers are talking about, quote, what the markets want or, quote, what the economy needs or what a responsible government must do, their language and metaphors are systematically used to limit the range of options that are sensible or pragmatic or, most frequently, responsible. So, you're kind of you're pointing to something that I know a lot of people listening would feel, which is, oh, every time they talk about economics, it feels like there's a clear right or wrong answer, and I didn't study economics, so I can't have an opinion for fear of being wrong. And yep. then it kind of shuts down debate and you have this idea that, well, clearly, you know, the coalition are right. They're the economic managers. They're the sensible ones. Labor has always been the big spenders. And it just goes back into these, you know, default narratives that Econobabble seeks to reinforce. So, I mean, with some of the examples maybe that from the book, one of them, you, you mentioned markets, and I loved the section about whether markets <laughs> have feelings. Um, can we talk about that? Because I I'm really frustrated about this kind of weird, almost godlike creature called the market that does have sentiment and feelings, apparently, even on the nightly news. Absolutely. And again, you know, this is not an accident. Um, uh, this has been developed over decades. It's been re reinforced by powerful people in politics and the media and business for decades. So, you know, when you strip it away, almost a bit embarrassing how silly it looks <laughs> but you know again you know we need to come out of the basement people it's okay like come up into the sunlight mm. so yeah next time you hear someone say markets insist that we need to do something or we have to do this or the markets will punish us and i'm not making this up if you look carefully you'll see it all the time in fact a lot of the stuff now is if we don't start paying down the debt the foreign money markets will punish us. The ratings agencies will punish us. You know, the markets will react angrily if we don't. And yeah, it's it's you know it's embarrassing to think of it like this. But you know, this is like Zeus and Apollo sending sending thunderbolts down if we if we don't make a sacrifice of the goat. You know, we we yeah. have to appease the gods on the mountaintop, and if we don't then we brought their wrath upon us, you know. And, of course, that sounds ridiculous when I say it out loud, but in the book I, I just go through all these examples of, you know, we, we, we have to reform the thin capitalisation regime or otherwise, you know, foreign, foreign investors will continue to shun uh, the Australian economy. 
you know, translates as if we don't cut taxes for multinationals, uh, the owners of multinational companies will get less money. You know, it's it's not complicated, but that's why they make it complicated because they know if we went to the next election saying, so we've got a big choice to make. Do we give a tax cut to people earning over 200 grand or do we spend a lot more money on health and education? What do you reckon, Australians? Now, in a democracy, that is literally the question you'd ask. Mm. But, of course, we can't say that. So we need to say, well, the government has a tax reform agenda designed to uh, fix the structure of the entire tax system to prepare Australia for the 21st century and the challenges we face with globalisation, and the Labor Party just wants to increase taxes and make us uncompetitive. Which, which, Which should we do? And... You know, a whole bunch of people actually take our democracy far more seriously than our politicians do. So they think, oh, I don't want to be uncompetitive and I don't want my kid to lose their job because I was so soft-hearted that I wanted to, you know, spend money on health instead of give rich people a tax cut. So, yeah, I I, I suppose I have to be responsible here. But... You know, the, the coalition are relying on the fact that the only responsible people left in Australia are the voters. <laughs> like they're, they're, they're not behaving responsibly, but they're banking on the fact that voters will. Mm. Well, they're not behaving responsibly, and you point out some pretty great examples of where they fall down. Uh, and, I'm, and sometimes it is quite... Uh, I guess, bipartisan. And one of those examples, although I know the Liberal Party would be even more gung-ho in this area, was defence, um, where you'd say that the Morrison government will spend more than $270 billion on defence, including $9.3 billion to develop new hypersonic weapons, $5 billion for a new undersea surveillance network, and $7 billion for a new space-based defence capabilities. You then point out a really interesting point, which maybe, I mean, I certainly wasn't aware of, but it makes a lot of sense. You say, uh, while that is more than the direct budgetary costs of responding to this once-in-a-century pandemic of COVID-19, there has been relatively little public or political debate. I mean, it's very true, and I wasn't really aware that we're spending more on defence than the entire pandemic response. Yep, exactly, because we're that kind of people, you know. So let, let, let me kind of – so all of that, you know, we don't debate these things, and that's, I think, a failing of our democracy. And by the way, I'm not saying we shouldn't spend money on defence. I actually think we should. Um, I'm saying that when we want to drop a lazy 200 bill – if we all want to, or when I say we all, I mean, if, if everyone in Parliament wants to spend $200 billion on something, it doesn't rate a mention. Yeah. It's not a big deal. It's not a big number. But if we don't want to spend uh, $5 million on a domestic violence shelter, oh, where will the money come from? Oh, the money. Oh, the AAA credit ratings wouldn't like if we just went around being willy-nilly spending $5 million to help women fleeing violence, where would it end? So when, when we want to spend a lot of money, we do. We always have. We always will. We're a very, very rich country, 13th, 14th biggest economy in the world. Right? We're not a small country. We're a rich country beyond our comprehension. Uh, so when we want to spend money, we do, which is good. Uh, and when we don't want to spend money, we don't say, I don't want to spend money. We pretend we can't afford it. Now, let me give you another analogy for defence um, or a contradiction. Um 
Um, I, the number of people who've told me in the last 20 years that the problem with climate change is it's a, it's a wicked problem, a wicked problem. And notice we're, we're blaming the problem here, not yeah. people. So it's a wicked problem. And why climate change is such a wicked problem that's so hard for democracy is that we have to spend money up front, costs are up front, to protect ourselves from something that's in the future and also something that's uncertain in the future. So we tell ourselves that in Australia, tackling climate change is really hard because you've got to spend some cash now to protect yourself in the future from a poorly specified threat. And I'm told that's just political suicide, except that we're going to spend $200 billion to build 12 new submarines to replace the six we haven't used yet. Right, and, 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 and when you say, okay, so if I build 12 new submarines and spend $200 billion building and maintaining them, will that make Australia safe? Oh, no, no, of course not. That's just a down payment on, you know, a, a very risky world. Oh, okay. And, and will the submarines, you know, will they, will they be the right deterrent that we'll need in 15 years' time when another country that may or may not deploy weapons that haven't been invented yet... Will the subs be the thing we need? Well, they could be. They very well could be. And imagine if we didn't have them, how silly we'd feel. So all of the arguments you've ever heard about why we, quote, can't afford to or it's reckless to spend money protecting ourselves from climate change, all of those arguments are directly contradicted by the arguments we use to justify far more, far greater spending on defence every year. It's as if everything we get told about this is crap. Yeah, well, it is. And like you go through in the chapter on climate change with some really excellent examples, including a very similar one that we've just mentioned about insurance and the fact that, you know, most people will buy a house or buy a car and get insurance uh, for the potential time where something might get flooded or there might be a fire, uh, any kind of thing, even a contents insurance, if they might have something stolen. You know, these are things that everyday Australians do and the government does in terms of um, an, an unknown potential threat that may never eventuate that we spend money on upfront in order to prevent um, future catastrophe or being in a much worse financial position than we are now, for example, if you're thinking about a house. Uh, and it reminded me, you know, to think about a really, you know, pivotal moment. I know a lot of people thought it was a pivotal moment um, in terms of the summer bushfires we did see that were so terrible. And so many of people's houses were destroyed. Many people do not have proper shelter and houses to even go to now uh, in the country. And so I was wondering about you know, the fact that we had this massive moment where there seemed to be pressure on the government to do something about it, uh, but then we'd quickly back away and our memory kind of erodes for those people who didn't have it directly affect them in terms of their livelihood. Um, is I guess the explanation must be all in your chapter on climate change, but maybe you could draw out some of those um, reasons why the coalition government continues to bang on about coal, to bang on about why we can't do something even when literally the fires um, are burning bushes and homes around us. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll come to the insurance bit in a minute, but there's a really simple answer for why the government is willing to spend $10 billion a year. It's the Australian Institute's latest estimate. 
$10 billion a year subsidising fossil fuels while pretending it would be a bad idea to subsidise electric cars or a bad idea to subsidise renewable energy, right? The reason they do it is because they want to, okay? And that's actually what democracy is all about. People don't want to become prime minister so they can sit in the big chair and have a cost-benefit analysis tell them what they should or shouldn't do all day. Guess what? People actually want to shape the country they live in. That's why they aspire to power. And when they get there, they do a whole bunch of things that they want to do. And what this government wants to do is protect its friends in the fossil fuel industry and slow down renewable energy, uh, not just in Australia, but around the world. Because when other countries sign up for net zero targets, they just signed up to not buy our coal. So we don't want other countries doing that. So that's why we're not making a net zero commitment, because we don't want anyone else to. We're trying to make it hard and slow for the rest of the world to stop buying our coal. Um, Now, you know, why? I don't know. Why do the Japanese love killing whales so much? Why do Americans think machine guns make school kids safe? Like, all countries do crazy shit. Like, let's just admit this. But different cultures, different cultures and different countries choose to do different crazy shit. And unfortunately, the stuff that we've chosen to do, so American gun culture kills Americans, Australian coal culture is causing global climate change. So I, I care even more. Um, but look back to insurance. Yeah, look, there's about a one in 10,000 chance that your house will burn down this year uh, or my house will burn down this year. And just to be clear, I, I have insurance for my house. I think it's a good idea because I'm a conservative, risk-averse person like most Australians, except when it comes to climate change. So there's a one in 10,000 chance your house is going to burn down and you pay a couple of thousand bucks a year to protect yourself from that probability. And at the end of the year, when your house doesn't burn down, not many people will go, oh, idiot, wasted my money, didn't crash my car this year, house didn't burn down this year, what am I blowing my dough on this stupid insurance for? But for decades, and you know, actually the debate's moved on a bit, but we still need to call it out. For decades, we were told by allegedly smart people that, oh, imagine how silly we'd feel if we invested in renewable energy and tried to tackle climate change and, you know, there's a one in a hundred chance that climate change isn't going to happen. Imagine how silly we'd feel if we took reasonable steps to prepare for a catastrophe so we could avoid it. Imagine how silly we'd feel if we kind of battened down the hatches and the cyclone didn't come. Imagine how silly we'd feel if we insured our car and didn't crash it. Like, this is not how humans think. But when it comes to climate change, when it comes to climate change, the alleged conservatives have taken this radical approach to risk of let's just suck it and see. Sure, all of the evidence says there's a cyclone heading our way, but imagine how silly we'd feel if we kind of, you know, cancelled the music festival and put the shutters up and, and, and then and the cyclone missed us. Let's focus on on the regret that we'd feel if, if something good happened rather than how stupid we'd feel when the predictable happened. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it reminded me of the ending of that chapter where you were saying 
that really we've had that debate about carbon policy and carbon pricing um, and using that market-based mechanism. And obviously many people will recall the whole carbon tax discussion, uh, which really dominated politics for so many years and certainly led to the demise of multiple prime ministers um, and the rise of another prime minister, Tony Abbott. So um, I really was interested in your pragmatic solutions at the end of that uh, chapter where you were saying uh, carbon pricing is good policy, um, but you don't necessarily, there's no economic or political necessity to win the fight about carbon pricing first, that there are actually other things that we can do now to act on climate change, even within the kind of narrow parameters that we have with this government. Oh, absolutely. And, and just to be clear, because I always get cranky mail when I say this, um, of course, I think we should have a carbon price. Yeah. Like, why, why wouldn't we tax things we want to discourage um, to either spend more money on things we want or to lower taxes on things uh, on something else, right? So it, it really is economics 101 that introducing a carbon price is efficient and equitable and will be good for us all in the long run. That is literally economics 101. But Politics 101 in Australia says it's suicide, don't do it, you can't do it. You know, the, the sky will fall on your electoral chances, even if it has no impact uh, or significant impact uh, on most of the economy. So if that's the case, if Politics 101 says it's impossible, then, you know, my advice to anyone is, well, why don't we start by removing the subsidies Rather, which is which should be easy. Why are we subsidising multinational coal companies? I mean, or oil companies. So Shell, you know, the large oil company, uh, it, it extracts an enormous amount of uh, gas in Australia, sells it overseas for very high prices. Um, haven't paid a cent in tax. I mean, go you, huh? Well done. So, so surely, you know, if and it's a big if we were serious about um, uh, tackling climate change, then the first thing we do is remove the subsidies that we give to the people causing it, make them pay tax like everyone else does. And sure, I'd slap a carbon price on as well, but I think we should do the easy stuff first. And to give you some orders of magnitude, uh, good on uh, good on Julia Gillard and Bob Brown for negotiating a carbon price. We did have one. Emissions did fall. The economy grew. So we know what happens when you put one in. Um, but the carbon price we put in was pretty small. We were very generous to the big polluters. Uh, and the carbon price that we implemented that worked, that drove emissions down, the carbon price we implemented collected less revenue than we gave to the polluters in subsidies. <laughs> Just to give you a order of magnitude for why the subsidies thing matters, even when we had a carbon price, we were still giving the fossil fuel industry money, more money than we were getting back. Staggering and now not so surprising after reading your book and how many different subsidies we give people that uh, I wasn't aware of. Richard, we're going to head to a short break and then we're going to come back to close out this conversation on a couple of uh, really key areas that we haven't yet mentioned. So uh, do stick around. We're going to be back in just over a minute's time. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. 
And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm having a fantastic conversation, a very enjoyable one, um, with Dr Richard Dennis, who is the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, and he's re released a very much newly revised book. It was a classic and it still is in its new form. It's called Econobabble, How to Decode Political Spin and Economic Nonsense. It's out through Black Ink. And uh, as I said before we got Richard on, um, I think this is actually one of the most practical books you could possibly buy because you'll probably refer to it in everyday life. And I hope (laughs) that you will. (laughs) And uh, hopefully this discussion is helping as well, Richard. Uh, We were just talking about climate change, and that is a fantastic part of your book. And obviously, um, we won't get to go into all of it, but you do really lay out in cold, hard facts all of the subsidies that we give the coal industry, the fossil fuel and gas industry. And of course, it is very relevant uh, at the moment, because as you say, the coalition government, instead of having a Green New Deal or a a renewable plan for the future, you know, to utilise this key moment with a pandemic uh, where government spending is needed to push the economy along, uh, instead of investing in electric cars or renewable energy or batteries, we're actually investing, as you say, in gas, uh, which really you know, it doesn't make much sense to myself and probably many others apart from those in the gas industry who are advising the Morrison government. So I thought we should mention that and also say uh, that the Australia Institute is keeping the government on their toes on that and uh, and actually really shining a light on the fallacies of this gas-led recovery. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we've got uh, some new research out today, good articles on it in The Guardian and on the New Daily. Um the rest of the world, when COVID hit, said, OK, this is a huge problem, but it's also an opportunity. Let's build back better. Let's have green new deals. Like, pretty much everyone in the world saw the opportunity. Like, we knew the government were going to spend a lot of money. And as the Australia Institute said at the time, you know, what you want to do is spend a lot of money uh, on things that are labour-intensive, that deliver lasting benefits in the local areas that need it. So that's how the rest of the world kind of dealt with it. And here in Australia, we went, buggy your Green New Deal, we're going to have a gas-led recovery, a gas-fired recovery, real blokey stuff, burning gas. And we didn't. During COVID, uh, or as we recovered from COVID, uh, the Australian economy put on 800,000 jobs, which was uh, because we stimulated the economy, because we spent so much money, it worked, Keynesianism works. But while we were busy putting on 800,000 jobs, employment in gas declined. It went backwards. <laughs> but but it, it didn't slow our recovery for the simple reason that the gas industry is a tiny, irrelevant employer in the scheme of our national labour force statistics. So, yeah, we didn't have a gas-led recovery. Gas, gas led our retreat, but luckily everyone else declined, uh, everyone else advanced. Uh, and now, of course, the government's just spent $2 billion uh, on subsidies for oil refinery, $600 million to build a new gas-fired power station. And, and our analysis out today shows that if you spent that money on higher education, you'd, you'd create around 10 times as many jobs. So we did not have a gas-fired recovery. We will not have a gas-led recovery, but we are hosing a lot of money at the gas industry. And if, and it's a big if, but if we were serious about creating a lot of jobs, 
it obviously would make more sense to spend that money on a labour-intensive industry that delivers lasting benefits like education. But we're not. We're a rich country. We're chucking money at some people and the gas industry are the lucky beneficiaries of that. Exactly, exactly. And you do talk about and break down the labour statistics for coal mining and fossil fuels and and obviously the fact that, um, for example, the coal industry employs less than 1% of employed Australians, 0.70% to be precise. So uh, although this is significant to some, uh, the smaller towns, I guess, in outside, uh, in rural Australia, for example, that isn't a reason to continue to prop up such industries. And I know there's also a debate here in Victoria, of course, about the logging industry and that also being something that's heavily subsidised by the state government. Um, There are, and you do point out, plenty of examples where industries have been moved on because, um, as you say, we transitioned from horses to cars. We transitioned from film-based cameras to digital cameras. There are a number of uh, moments in time where we've had to change and revitalise, but the key there was that the government was planning for this for a very long time, brought the population along with them and actually made sure that those people affected weren't going to be um, substantially uh, negatively affected in social and financial ways. So there are really quite clear examples of where, you know, the the world didn't end, uh, the economy didn't die. Uh, in fact, you know, there are many um, key examples in your book about how it's actually probably cheaper to uh, focus on renewable energies and better for the economy. And just to be clear, while I do often make the statistically unarguable point, even though it's controversial in Australia, uh, that coal employs less than 1% of Australian workers. Even though I make that point, that doesn't mean I don't I, I don't care about those, that small number of workers. I do. I care about the small number of workers uh, that work in any industry. I care about the large number of women that used to work in textile mills that we shut down with no real transition planning. I care about the large number of people that work in the car industry in Victoria and in South Australia that we shut down without real transition planning. Um, I've been on the side of helping workers protect themselves from egregious neoliberal policy my entire adult life. So it does stick in my craw when I'm told that I'm the one that doesn't care about the ordinary workers, you know, and and, and the people that literally goaded the car industry into leaving our shores are are the true champions of of blue-collar jobs in Australia. It is is sickening in its obscenity, but it works. You know, it's shameless, but it works. So I do care about those workers, absolutely do. And to take coal, for example... I mean, you know, the Australian Institute for years has been pushing a very simple idea. What if we stopped building new coal mines? Not shut down overnight. Let's call shut down all the mines tomorrow the extreme left position. But not build 23 new coal mines in New South Wales like the current government wants to. What if instead of shutting them all down tomorrow or building 23 new ones, what if we did something radical or sensible, like just didn't build new ones. That would actually help the workers in existing coal mines, Mm. right? (laughs) Building new hotels in Cairns at the moment is not going to help unemployed tourism workers. Building new coal mines 
in the Hunter Valley is not going to make the world want to buy more of our coal. It's actually going to undercut the price and the labour standards of the people working in the existing mines. But so broken is our national debate, so broken is our economic debate, when I say, how would opening 23 new mines help the workers in existing coal mines, I'm a crazy lefty who wants to shut the mines down tomorrow. I just... It doesn't have to make sense. <laughs> when, yeah. You know, in Australia, power is the ability to talk crap and get away with it. <laughs> well, then that means this government is very powerful. They uh, are. They certainly are. <laughs> well, I, f- I feel that, I, and I did make this remark to a friend uh, when I was talking about the vaccine rollout as an example, that, you know, if you keep repeating the same lines and you keep repeat, repeating a view of reality that isn't actually correct, you actually end up transforming that reality to the one that you have created yourself and people start to believe the reality that you've constructed. So, you know, when we hear that idea of debt and deficit, debt and deficit, um, jobs and growth, jobs and growth, or, you know, the fact that uh, the coalition government hasn't bungled the vaccine rollout and it's just hesitancy and the fact that we had some bad luck with uh, doses at the beginning and AstraZeneca, well, people start to believe it because if you keep saying the lie again and again um, and it seems like an easy explanation, well, then the kind of reality shifts. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, uh, the the lack of media diversity in Australia plays into that. The rise of social media plays into that. Um, there's all sorts of reasons why it's the case. But, but ultimately, um, democracy just doesn't work when our elected representatives lie to our face. Mm. And it's not obvious. Again, there's nothing in the Constitution that says our democracy should work well. It just gives us some rules. Um if, if we kind of don't want to take the, the principles of democracy seriously, principles like accountability, principles of, of truthfulness, um, then our democracy won't work and bad things will happen. Uh, so, you know, that's up to us. And, you know, I'm an optimist. I, I keep plugging away. Uh, I think we, these problems are fixable. But if ultimately people would prefer... Uh, a tax cut than to spend more money on their man. Uh, if people really are willing to vote for people that they know are lying to them, uh, then that's as, in the long run, that's as much on us uh, as it is on them. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm confident about all of your listeners. I reckon they're doing the right thing. I'm sure yeah. they always talk to their friends and, 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 and vote their conscience. But, you know, I'm a bit worried about the person sitting next to them. Um, so, yeah. But anyway, yeah. We, we can fix this. We know yes. how to fix it. We've fixed it before. Other countries have fixed it. Well, um, I want to bring in a topic that I just found um, painfully illuminating. And we have <laughs> talked about it before, but it really did bring it home uh, very, very obviously, and this is um, the labour market and unemployment. And I did note and see that even on budget night, we were seeing some conversations with uh, business, small business owners of pubs, for example, who were looking for hospitality staff and they couldn't get the right staff uh, to fill these positions. So they were going to be affected in terms of their profits and turnovers. 
Um, and I did see you, you know, getting on Twitter to talk about that. Uh, so I thought let's just let's dive into this fraught area of labour oh. markets and unemployment, oh. Richard. Oh, spare me. I, I think you were watching the ABC. Yeah, I, think I you was. Watched Jer- I think you watched Jeremy Fernandez in interviewing yep. uh, a, a woman in a pub about how hard it was to get staff these days. Uh-huh. I I rarely throw my shoes around the house, but, oh, that night, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, let's just do a little recap on what capitalism is. Um, in capitalism, uh, people are free to set up uh, their own business, where they pay for the costs of that business in order to produce stuff that they sell. And if the price that they get for the stuff they sell is greater than the cost, they make a profit and they get to keep it. This is the whole foundational principle of free markets and deregulation and indeed capitalism. And now in Australia, I, I, I just a day never passes me by where I don't hear a capitalist, a business owner, a person whose job it is to organise production of something so they can sell things at a profit, saying it's my problem as a taxpayer or the government's problem as a bureaucracy. It's my problem that they can't secure uh, cleaners or, uh, or waiters or other people that, that they wish they could click their fingers and find. Well, you know, in my job, if I have to find something, I have to go looking for it. I don't blame the government for it. And if there's not an abundance of of trained cleaners or trained waiters that are willing to work at your current wage rate, here's a tip, train some people or pay them a higher wage. This The whole idea of a skills shortage is not mentioned in an economics textbook for the same reason that we don't say there's a prawn shortage at Christmas time when the price of prawns goes up, we don't say there's a hotel room shortage on a long weekend when the price of the rooms go up. So if I own a hotel and there's lots of demand for my rooms and, and I can't change the supply in the short term, as a hotel owner, I jack up the price and stick the money in my pocket. So how yep. come they're allowed? How come they're allowed? They don't say, "Oh my, there's a there's a hotel room shortage." Can the government come and build some more hotel rooms to compete with me and push the price back down? So the whole point of a flexible, deregulated labour market, thirty years of reform, the whole point was that this is the employer's problem, and if training cleaners is beyond you as a hotel manager. I think that reflects badly on you, not on the unemployed. Yep. Well, and that's what I loved about the example you gave of a small town and the three pubs uh, in that small town. And you talk about and bring in this idea of wages, and it is obviously throughout the entire chapter and very relevant to the conversation we're having about wages growth and how that will somehow affect profits, how it will affect inflation. I mean, can you really, I guess, explain to us, if you can, um, what why business are so reluctant to uh, increase wages growth and even why the coalition government uh, seemingly is not interested in wages going up? Uh, yeah, because they don't want wages to go up. I mean, let's be clear. 
like we've spent 30 years changing the rules in Australia, 30 years changing the law in Australia to virtually criminalise going on strike, to, to make bargaining excruciatingly complicated. We've spent 30 years reforming, in inverted commas, or just changing the rules in order to lower wage growth. The first thing Eric Abetz said when he became employment minister under Tony Abbott, the first thing he said in 2013 was that his job was to prevent a wages explosion. Well, mission accomplished, all right? Can we land the plane on the aircraft carrier, get out the flags? We succeeded in the mission of preventing a wages explosion. And now we're like the dog that caught the car. We've got a mouthful of muffler. Like we've been chasing wages growth, barking at it for years, saying that high wages would make us uncompetitive. Wrong. High wages, wages are high in all sorts of, you know, rich European countries. I've been saying we have to casualise the labour market. We have to lower wages. We have to smash unions. All right. Success. We did it. Oh, how come wage growth is so low? <laughs> it's not an accident. And let's be clear, the profit share at the moment, the profit share of GDP is at an all-time high. So, you know, all of these, all these business owners, what they want is they want their customers to get a pay rise and their staff to get a pay cut. But guess what? Everyone is someone's customer. Right? Yes. So, you know, the business community are just shedding crocodile tears. They've fought wages growth for decades and they got what they wanted. And now, according to Treasury, according to the Reserve Bank, according to my good self, low wage growth is one of the major reasons that our economy is growing so slow. We caused it and we don't actually want to fix it. You know, mm. we, don't want the min we don't want the minimum wage to go up. We've got a freeze on public sector wages and we're, we're still clamping down on unions to prevent them bargaining effectively. How can you have wage growth at a national level if you oppose everyone who wants a pay rise? Yep. Yep, it's so true. And and I loved when you were talking also about the key uh, part that we haven't mentioned but we have discussed before, which is the natural rate of unemployment. Uh, so the government and Treasury and the RBA making an assumption that there is a natural rate of unemployment that we want to maintain and keep at a certain level. So, you know, whether that's between 600 to 500,000 Australians always being unemployed in Australia, that uh, has a a real function in our economy, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, you know, econobabble alert here. This is kind of some 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 A grade stuff. Yeah. So, in a, in economics, there's a concept of the natural rate of unemployment, or more formally, the NERU, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. Or hang on to your hats. Here's here's the weirdest one. I'll say it slowly and I'll say it twice. The full employment rate of unemployment, full em the full employment rate of unemployment. You might think that the full employment rate of unemployment is a non sequitur. You might think that it's zero. You might think yeah. that when we have zero unemployment, we're fully employed. But no, 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 no. There's you 
thinking English word language English language words have plain meanings. In Australian economic debates, full employment means about six or seven hundred thousand unemployed people. Mm. And when there's less than that, say we got unemployment down to two hundred thousand, oh, people would panic. People would say, "Oh, this is terrible." Um, you know, if, if if there's not a big pool of unemployed people out there, I might not be able to instantly replace my staff if they quit. And if my staff know I can't instantly replace them when they quit, they might ask me for a pay rise and I might have to give it to them. <laughs> you, you've got to keep a big pool of six or 700,000 unemployed out there so that I can keep all my low-paid workers scared of being unemployed themselves. Right, I'm not yeah. making this up. This is... <laughs> Australian economic policy. And when you hear Josh Frydenberg say, oh, I don't think we should start, you know, worrying about the deficit or worrying about interest rates until unemployment starts with a four, what he's saying is, oh, I think the full employment rate of unemployment, I think the natural rate of unemployment might be only four or 500,000 people now. <laughs> he doesn't think it should be zero. And again, people are popping champagne corks, saying, "Oh, yeah, we're going to we're going to aim for lower unemployment than we used to." We used to blame the unemployed when there were seven hundred thousand of them, knowing we didn't want any less. Now we're going to blame the unemployed for being unemployed if it gets down to around five hundred thousand. We're a nasty, nasty people. We are, we are. Richard, I know you have to go, so I just want to point out that there is much more to this book than we've even got to, and there is a conclusion where you do give people some um, handy tips of what they can actually do to challenge and get on top of this econobabble, and obviously the first step is knowing it, identifying it, and understanding it, but it's great that you do give some practical uh, things that people can do, so I do hope that that is a good enough reason to go out and get this book Econobabble, How to Decode Political Spin and Economic Nonsense. Thank you so much, Richard Dennis. It's just been a real delight and uh, uh, entertaining as always. Thank you. And look, I, even if you don't buy the book, my one bit of advice is ask simple questions and demand simple answers. Yep. If someone if someone has to econobabble you to explain something to you, they either don't understand it themselves or they're trying to pull the wool over your eyes. If they're really expert, they can speak as plainly as I have today. I love it. I love it. That's a perfect tip. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a great day, Richard. Great, you too. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. This uh, chat is something I've really look, been looking forward to, which is a conversation with Chris Sharinga, who is a campaigner at the Goongarra Environment Centre in East Gippsland. Um, there's been so many developments around the forests in East Gippsland and also, you know, just constant campaigning from people on the ground in East Gippsland, the resilience and tenacity of locals and those who are just passionate and coming to support the activism there are really impressive and I can't wait to hear about that and the Save Erinundra campaign um, from Chris. So I welcome Chris now who's joining me on Skype. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, how are you today? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to have an opportunity to chat about the campaign and yeah, chat with you. So thanks so much. 
It's a pleasure. And um, I was talking off air about how uh, in recent times we've covered uh, the Central Highlands and obviously there's been a really key court case or a couple actually but one that we've covered in detail was the lead beaters possum court case and obviously that certainly had another development um, in its appeal in the last couple of weeks but uh, there are a number of other fronts to this issue of native forest logging and conservation across victoria Mm -hmm. and it may really i guess shock some people given the bushfires that were really, really so extensive in East Gippsland, to even think that the state government would consider logging uh, what is left of the pristine forests in East Gippsland. So, first of all, um, I was wondering if you could, for our listeners who aren't familiar with East Gippsland and the beauty and really, I guess, unique uh, ecology and diversity of those forests, could you share with us some of what you know about um, the areas of East Gippsland and the forests that you um, at Goongarra and a number of other activist groups have been seeking to protect? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, East Gippsland, it's it's a really, really special place and its forests are kind of, you know, this this really key, beautiful, um, beautiful areas and a lot of people, um, you know, visit these areas, communities that are close to, to towns and communities, which are, so the forests are really important areas for people, um, you know, wanting to visit really unique and special places and you've kind of got this, you know, areas of really, really tall, wet, um, old-growth forests around around the plateau uh, and in Erinundra, where a lot of the protests have been taking place in the last in the last few months, and also, yeah, more um, kind of coastal coastal forests as well around the Colhoun and um, around Cabbage Tree, and yeah, really significant place as well for rainforests, um, cool temperate rainforests, and also warm temperate rainforests, and that rare kind of crossover and of course you know all of these different forest types um they're really a a stronghold for for threatened species as well so really really critical for a lot of the uh interesting wildlife that we've got in in victoria like um yeah the greater glider long-footed potteroo um large um large brown tree frog yeah Mm. it's really really special really really special and important place it certainly sounds like it, and it also looks like it because um, I did get to see some really stunning photographs that have been taken by Tasmanian nature photographer Rob Blakers, and I know um, yeah. there's been some really stunning videos as well that have been created, uh, and one of them I did see that really captured my imagination was of the Kuark Forest, which um, just seems really majestic and stunning, uh, but I know that it was also really seriously affected by the devastating bushfires of 2019 and 2020. So um, I wondered if you could share with us some of that uh, area and and what makes Mount Kuark and the the old growth forest there so special. Yeah, Kuark Kuark is a, yeah, as you said, it's a really, really special, special place. It's got that that rare, really rare mix of, of warm temperate rainforest species and cool temperate rainforest species, and that's kind of what makes it what makes it so, so special. Um, and unfortunately, it was hit really hard by by the 2019-2020 bushfires. And it was an area that um, Coonga Environment and Gecko um, had been campaigning for protection 
for almost five years. And that was also a combination of, you know, direct action, um, a lot of citizen science work, legal, uh, legal and court case pressure, um, which resulted in the area being protected. And unfortunately, yeah, it was hit really hard by the fires. Um, and, yeah, we actually visited the area just after the fires with Rob Blakers to kind of do a before and after series to go back to those areas where we got those really iconic, beautiful photos and just to really show the impacts of the fires and just how devastating they were for some of these places. And so it kind of highlights, um, yeah, just the the bushfires really had a, a terrible impact on the forest in East Gippsland. And so that's why, you know, these areas that managed to survive and they're really kind of just small few remaining areas that are left, how important they are to, to protect. And, yeah, it is surprising, you know, you see these these, you see these images of these forests burning and, and it was really, really shocking and seeing, seeing the images of the animals and, and, and how bad it was. And, yeah, it's, it's shocking to learn that the state government is still, is still logging these areas. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly is. And I really urge people to look at those photographs. I'll post them um, or share them on Instagram because I know a lot of it is up there already um, shared by a number Mm. of the activist groups working in East Gippsland. Um, One of the interesting parts to this story is the fact that there has been uh, a proposed Sea to Summit forest trail called the Emerald Link, and that is something that I know a number of groups have been pushing for is so that more Victorians and others can actually access and engage with and appreciate the beauty of East Gippsland's forests. And it is something that I believe the state government has um, to some degree supported. So I wondered if you could talk to that project and also, I guess, the really clear tensions that exist with a state government that is happy to support tourism, but then is also seeking to log forests even nearby to this proposed um, Emerald Link. Yeah. So the Emerald Link proposal, yeah, it is. It is going 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 ahead. I see the summit, summit to see. No, I mean, it sounds better. Um, uh, see the summit, but then you'd be walking largely uphill. So I'm not sure about <laughs> what the name. Yeah, how the name is going to work there. Um, but yeah, it is. It is going ahead. And and you're right. It is interesting. This this kind of tension between, yeah, wanting to create access to these in, incredible places and then also the logging that happens. Uh, it's, it's certainly a, a conflict of, <laughs> yeah, a big conflict. Um, and there was actually logging coops planned along the, the, the Cedar Summit Trail um, and, and, and then after pressure kind of from, from Gecko and, and really, you know, a, a public campaign and a news story saying, oh, well, you know, no one wants to go on a walk where there's clear fell forests or and and they did actually end up pulling those coops from from that from the walk um but yeah i suppose um into in terms of yeah the the logging i guess um it's interesting since the fires i think the government it hasn't really taken stock of sort of like what's happening what's happened out in east Gippsland. i mean there's been these terrible fires and uh Logging is still continuing in these areas, and there was actually more 
areas scheduled for logging after the fire. So new logging schedules came out and there wasn't any real change uh, to logging plans. So, yeah, I suppose um, that's quite shocking and and we're kind of like trying to keep an eye really uh, on on the areas that they're going into and, yeah, they are starting to go into these little refuge, refuges and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. And we'll um, we'll get to the Save Air and Undra campaign in just a minute, but I did want to uh, help to put into context what we're discussing here. Um, we on this show have spoken about the Central Highlands a bit and the really interesting diversity of mammals and birds and, um, you know, obviously the plants as well. And it's mm-hmm. also really interesting looking at the stats um, that have been put together where essentially when we're looking at, for example, the area we've been talking about, Mount Quark, uh, over 40% of Victoria's sooty owl habitat is within the burnt zone in this area. Over 25% of Victoria's greater glider habitat is within it. 70% Mm. of Victoria's warm temperate rainforest is within it. 30% of Victoria's cool temperate rainforests are within it. 100% of the habitat for the East Gippsland galaxias is within the burnt zone. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. this is not an insignificant section of Gippsland and it's only one of many really special areas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And it is one of, it's one of the the last kind of like intact areas of forest, I suppose, for the Cedar Summit Trail, where it runs like from those mountains all the way down down to the coast. And even though it was impacted by the fires, um, there are some areas which were left unburned, and there are are areas which are are recovering. So yeah, mm. yeah. And I know critical areas. No, absolutely. And I know that um, Gecko and another and other groups have been, you know, focusing on citizen science, and that is one of the key features um, in order to try and prevent native forest logging. Um, obviously, we've moved past the point of uh, reasoning in terms of what the science tells us about native forest logging, and it doesn't appear that Vic Forest or the state government are moved by that and are changing course in a rapid way, they're changing course in about 10 or so years, but not soon enough for the forests. So I wonder if you could share with us some of the activities that you've been doing um, to try and track the numbers of, of uh, mammals like the greater glider to try and prevent some of the native forest logging that is planned or that has been proposed to occur. Yeah, we've done a number of um, of spotlight surveys around that Erinundra that Erinundra area. Um, it's kind of identified as a really key greater glider uh, refuge, and not just from the impacts of the fires because it's unburnt, but also as a climate refuge. The greater glider is um, very vulnerable to changes in overnight temperatures, and so uh, it's one of it's. Yeah, it's it's one of these areas which, you know, those overnight temperatures are, are kind of staying at levels which is safe for the glider and so it's a really, really critical area. Uh, and a lot of throughout the areas where protests have been happening, so there was one, one it started off at, at one coop and then it kind of spread to two or three in this, in this small kind of area uh, and citizen science spotlighting surveys kind of happened across there where greater gliders were found across across the, these forests. Um, 
And then also we've been doing some yellow belly glider surveys, which involves going out with a megaphone and doing like a call, call playback um, spot lighting surveys. And, and yeah, so you, you record how many yellow belly gliders there are and there are prescriptions which get, get both of those species protections. Yeah, and so I'm guessing that that means that citizen science is playing a really key role in seeking to change and prevent the plans for logging in these areas in addition to the type of activism and pressure that's being put in place in this Save Erinundra camp. Absolutely. But we found we found um, as well that the, the environment department where you put in these these threatened species report reports are very reluctant to actually put in some of some of the protections and also will sometimes will place the protections in areas where uh, the animals aren't actually present and protected from from logging. And so, for example, um, some yellow belly glider surveys that were done in an, in a really beautiful area in the Colhoun, which is just out the back of Lakes Entrance. Uh, which should have resulted in a hundred hectares, a uh, hundred hectare protection zone. The zone was placed along an existing protection area along a stream where some of the animals had been found, but the area within the the coop, which was actually scheduled where they'd been found, wasn't being protected. And also in around the Erinundra area where we'd done greater glider surveys, um, we'd also met the prescriptions but the department were refusing to put in the zones. And so it's 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 been a it's been a constant battle with the state government on legislated protections, which were already in place before the fires. But, you know, on top of that, you know, there's been these awful fires and so it, the precautionary approach would be that you should put in extra protections, but that's not even happening. So they're fighting us on existing protections and then they won't put in extra protections after the after the fire. So it's it's quite frustrating, yeah, when you're on the ground and you see these animals, you see them in the forest and you know how important his forests are for them. They don't persist when you log uh, like greater gliders, um, but they're still, yeah, swathes of forest critical greater glider habitat is still being logged. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it must be. And just, I guess, really affecting at a personal level for people who, you know, you're camping out there, you're quite literally surrounded by the nature and the beautiful area and the animals that you're seeking to protect. So it really must bring it home, you know, that this issue, it's not uh, just an intellectual issue about science. It's an, a, a real um significant issue for humans, human beings, and it reminds us of our, you know, key destructive impact on our nature and the environment. And obviously the bushfires were clearly uh, affected by climate change. And that's another example of, you know, where we've had Mm -hmm. a terrible influence. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, after the bushfires, I I think there was a, there was a lot of, um, Statements that came out um, from scientists saying that you know these these mega fires are just becoming more and more frequent, and so the threat of of, of fire in in this landscape and in our in, in Victoria's forests and I mean across Australia, um, yeah, it's it's creating a really precarious um, kind of situation for all all the threatened species that that yeah are still persisting in these small green green areas. 
And so it, it just makes it even more important that we have to protect these places. Mm. And I know that there's been a lot of developments, but maybe we'll just um, take one step back before we get to them to set the scene for those who haven't been following along either in person or online in terms of the activism that's been happening on the ground in Erinundra and elsewhere, because it is significant and it's really been very impressive to see over a number of months people going out there um, camping in freezing conditions, sitting up in trees, uh, chaining themselves to logging um, machinery. I mean, what are some of what what has it been like on the ground at these camps um, in Erinundra, where activists have been doing a lot of hard yards, not just there, but also um, pushing out through online, getting other people to stand behind them and to also put pressure on the state government. Yeah, I mean, it's always it's always a really exciting energy being out at a camp that's kind of supporting supporting uh, direct action. And I mean, one of the most incredible things is just seeing people come together who who really care and the community as well. And yeah, as you say, the, the fortitude and the dedication. Um, and it's yeah, it's not it's not always comfortable. It can be cold. It can be um, it rains a lot around around that area. Um, and so, and people really put their lives on hold so that they can, so that they can be there. And, um, yeah, I'm, I mean, over six people were, were arrested for, yeah, various things, um, being up in trees and one person spent 11 days up, up in a tree before they were arrested, which is just, <laughs> wow. just amazing. And so it's, it's really quite inspirational and the feeling at camp, you know, yeah, it's, it's it's really exciting. It's an exciting thing to be a part of, and I think as well that um, the camp really provides an opportunity just for people. You know, direct action can seem kind of intimidating or extreme, but in these circumstances, when you know you do everything that you can to try and protect these places, um, and you're still just coming up against this, um, yeah, the state governments just persistence on, on going into these onto these places and the community has had enough. Um, they've been through, you know, the bushfires and watching forests roll out the back roll out of their towns on the back of log trucks. It's it's devastating. And so to really um, come together and to try and save these places, it's been yeah, it's been a really, really important thing to bring everyone together to to take a stand against it and mm. it's been really inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. And I so we've you know talking there about spoken sorry about uh, direct action and activism and of course citizen science being another key component as well as online activism and people you know phoning their uh, their representatives, the minister's office, the premier's office. These are things that absolutely work and they should be used in that tool book um one of the one of the things toolbox i should say um one of the things that is also used and it's usually obviously a last resort because you don't want to have to get to this point but of course uh there have been examples even in this uh, situation where um, environment east gippsland for example secured a court injunction to halt logging in the Alaturka Coop. Um, I know that it has been quite an effective mechanism in, at times where uh, if you don't get 
the kind of desired outcome or if there's still this kind of reticence to protect the correct areas, as you said before, about actually um, preventing logging in the areas that do have uh, greater gliders, for example. Um, like what has been the experience in terms of Erinandra and the kind of court action and injunctions that have been required to um, to achieve protection and, and what has that experience been? Yeah, I think the court cases are, uh, I mean, they're just a fundamental thing, I suppose, that it's, it's the community's right, really, that if, if the law isn't being followed, that we can kind of take these, take these, um, these legal legal measures to, to protect areas and like with the Friends of Leadbeater's Possum case and also um, the, uh, there's been a, an old growth forest case still going in East Gippsland which has protected over 30 areas of, or is still protecting over 30 areas of, of old growth forest in, in, in East Gippsland and it, yeah it does kind of put this really really good pressure on to, to, to actually protect protect forests and hold the government accountable to the law. Um, but it's it's quite worrying. There are changes coming up to the law which governs logging, which, and it's been flagged that they are trying to change the law to make it so that third-party community groups or community organisations can't take Vic Forest to court or the state government to court over, over illegal logging. And that's really scary um, that the government is trying to take away, like instead of as a response to all of these court cases that are, that are happening to actually make sure that the logging that they're doing is, is, is legal, they're actually trying to change the law so that community groups can't use that fundamental right to defend these forests yeah, through the courts, which is just appalling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is really concerning and um, we're going to go to a short break and then we'll come back to close out this conversation, Chris. So everyone listening, do stick with us. Uh, We'll be back in about a minute's time. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins. I'm really pleased to be speaking with Chris Sharinga, campaigner at Gecko, the Goongara Environment Centre. We've been talking about the native forests of East Gippsland, including Erinundra, which has recently been and still is the key focus for activism there. Um, the Save Erinundra campaign is very much visible on the ground and also online. And uh, I welcome Chris back to conclude and, I guess, uh, talk about some of the the issues that have really have been brought to light and, I guess, seen developments in the last few days. So, Chris, I know that um, there have been some really positive, specific developments uh, around areas like the playgrounds track and obviously it sounds like that's been quite a positive development. So I wondered if you could share what the significance of um, that is to campaigners like yourself and also what success uh, might look like overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So two of the areas on on Playgrounds Track where protests kind of have been continuing since, since January have been taken off the the immediate logging schedule, so it looks like, yeah, for now they're they're safe. Um, 
Vic Forest also said in court that one of those areas wouldn't be logged until or April next year, um, and that if they were to go in there, that it would be um, uh, yeah, kind of a, a breach of the court. Or yeah, yeah, quite serious. So so that's yeah, that's a really really great outcome. And one of the areas also uh, now has a special protection zone over it, so they won't be going into that area at all. And Vic Forest said that they're going to take it completely off the schedule, which is yeah, really positive news. And I suppose the wider implications of that, I, yeah, I guess is, um, you know, it's it's taken, it's been a big, big campaign. So to be able to say, you know, that, that some of these areas are safe for now is, is really, really positive. Uh, and I think we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Like, obviously, the citizen science and, and direct action and all of the, the public support and the public pressure or the emails, the phone calls, it, it really does work. And so, yeah, we're just going to keep doing what we do as long as these forests are under threat of logging. Um, and, yeah, we really want to see – we want to see these areas protected and we want to see the the transition plan brought forward. It just doesn't seem tenable after the fires that, that this plan – yeah, that logging can continue till 2030. So we're going to keep up the pressure to, mm. to try and pull that date forward. Yeah. That's excellent. And um, Chris, I know that there are a number of ways that people could actually support these campaigns into the medium and long term, because this is something that doesn't just finish overnight. And I know that there's uh, a citizen science camp coming up in June. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's over the long weekend uh, in a couple of weeks. I think it's 11th, 12th, 13th of June. And what yeah. kind of things yeah. will so people... Yeah, so if you're interested in coming out... Um, yeah, go ahead. No, I just wanted to understand, you know, what kind of things people might get to do and and see over there. Yeah, we'll be doing um, some nocturnal spotlight surveys. So if you're interested in seeing some of the wildlife um, that, that we've been chatting about, the greater glider, yellow belly glider, forest owls, um, yeah, we'll be doing spotlight surveys. Uh, and also putting out some some wildlife cameras as well, so going for walks through the forest. And, yeah, there'll be um, uh, lots of folks around who have been involved in the campaign, so happy to share and share knowledge and, and chat about what's been happening on the ground and also local ecologists. And, yeah, it'll be really awesome. So, yeah, we're really excited. Definitely mm. come out to experience these forests. They're, they're very beautiful. Yeah, I think that's really a great idea and I know that there'll be a number of people who would love to get back out there, especially after the bushfires and uh, many people who wouldn't have had the chance to travel yet um, given restrictions and various things that have been happening. Um, one other element to this is, of course, what we've talked about throughout this chat, which is the direct action and activism that people can undertake and are supported by organisations like Gecko, like um, Save Erinundra and Save East Gippsland. There are so many groups working on this issue um, and there are many ways that uh, these groups, including your own, have laid out, um, I, I guess, options for people to make their views known to their, their representatives to actually... Uh, create the pressure that's required and create the signals that are needed to actually get them to change course. Even in small ways, it still makes a huge difference. So if people were looking to uh, tell their local member or like 
put pressure on Parliament, what are some of the best things that they could do if they disagree with native forest logging in East Gippsland? Yeah, definitely calling and, and emailing the decision makers, so Premier Daniel Andrews, uh, the Environment Minister, Lily D'Ambrosio, and also the, the Agriculture Minister there in charge of Vic Forest, that's Marianne Thomas. Uh, contacting those decision makers is really important. And even just being aware of who your local member is and sending them an email and just saying, you know, no matter what political party they're from, just saying, hey, this is a really important issue and I want you as my representative, you know, to... to uh, be bringing this up and putting pressure on uh, to to protect forests out in East Gippsland and the Central Highlands. Um, there's so many beautiful places across Victoria which are still under imminent threat from logging and I think there's a lot of community groups out there as well that operate even across the Central Highlands and East Gippsland. Um, people are always looking, you know, for support and volunteers and things like that to, mm. to get involved and, yeah, yeah, heaps and heaps of ways to to put the pressure on to, to save these forests. Absolutely. And I know that if anyone wants to stay connected in with this and to also get those, you know, video and uh, visual updates on the ground, they can certainly follow the groups who have been there, like um, yourself, Goongara Environment Centre, which are on Instagram. There's also Save Erinundra, which are giving regular updates. So, and also obviously those ways to keep you updated as to how court cases are going, um, what activism and action that you guys are taking that you wish um, that there would be more of if you can gain more support so there's certainly a lot of ways that people can still feel connected with this campaign if they can't be out in East Gippsland at this very moment so I do urge anyone listening to make sure that they connect in and stay across this issue and keep the pressure up if this is something that you also um, are really shocked and concerned by and I know um, so many people listening will be uh, concerned by this. Chris Thank you and also pass on my thanks to everyone at the camp and beyond who have been doing such phenomenal work over the last few months and more and uh, and really, you know, it's heartening to see that even though um, we, when we can't actually get out there ourselves that there are people out there, you know, with that strength, resilience and grit um, doing what they can in a peaceful way to prevent logging from happening and to protect the environment that we so dearly love. Thank you so much for having me. It's been it's been really, really nice to, to chat. And thank you. You too. I've just been chatting with Chris Sharinga, who is campaigner at Gecko, the Goongara Environment Centre in East Gippsland. And we've been talking about the recent developments in the Save Erinundra campaign and also more broadly, native forest logging in East Gippsland. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome back onto the program Janine Burke, who I spoke with a number of years ago, I believe, and we were talking about women, Australian women artists in Australia. And uh, Janine is a historian who has done great work on Australian women artists. And it is nice to see that more and more Australian women are finally being recognised for 
their artistic genius, which is certainly not just a male domain, although a number of uh, art history monographs would give you that impression, but we are going to talk about something a little bit different but still related, which is drawing on Janine's great uh, professional work, both as an author of many books and also as an art historian. She has written a book called My Forests, Travels with Trees. It's out through Maigunya Press, which is an imprint of Melbourne University Publishing. And uh, I know that Janine has written a number of really well-received books. And uh, when I was doing some research for an interview on Joy Hester, who was actually being featured at the Heidi semi-recently, of course, Janine's book is really the seminal work on Joy Hester. And uh, I know that it was kind of hard to get a copy of it myself. So I'm hoping that maybe one day there'll be a reprint if there isn't already. Uh, But I welcome onto the program art historian and author Janine Burke. Welcome to the show, Janine. Thank you so much, Amy. It's great to be here. And uh, I know that, you know, in art history and art circles, your name is very well known. So uh, there'll be a lot of people familiar with your work already. Uh, in particular, um, I know you, you've you written a lot of books and uh, really interesting pieces on the Heidi Circle out in Heidelberg um, and focused a lot on modern art in your career. So maybe we can just take one uh, step back for those who are not acquainted with your work yet and get a sense from you as to your um, professional passions around art and what has really been driving you um, in art for all these years. Well, that's a very good and a very interesting question. Uh, I think I was very fortunate, like at an early point in my career when I was just starting out in my early 20s, that I had a a wonderful mentor um, in the form of Kiffy Rubo, who was the director of a a very exciting and progressive gallery, uh, George Payton Gallery at University of Melbourne. And Kiffy and I curated an exhibition called A Room of One's Own, Three Women Artists, and that featured Julie Irving, Leslie Dumbrell and Anne Newmarch and it was probably the first, that was in 1974 so it was probably the first feminist art exhibition in Australia and then Kiffy uh, commissioned me the following year to curate a national uh, touring exhibition, Australian Women Artists, 100 Years 1840 to 1940 so you know I was very fortunate to have um, a mentor such as, as Kiffy who could who could see ahead. I mean, she was a real visionary. She was an extraordinary person. And this was the mid-1970s, 1975, the year we did uh, Australian Men Artists was International Women's Year. So there was a great deal of focus on women and women artists. And it, it provided both that exhibition and the book, I think, provided a, a great deal of information that was very warmly received. But unfortunately, with these things, we, you know, we have to seem to keep reinventing the wheel with um, with women artists and uh, because they seem to be continuously excluded. But currently there's a lot of exciting exhibitions on around the country, especially at the National Gallery of Australia, uh, the Know My Name exhibitions, which are sourced from the NGA and and countrywide because the director of the NGA realised what a small number of women were in the collection. So yeah, we're we're sort of we're going we're going backwards to move forwards, if you like. Um, it seems to be something of a prerogative of our condition as um, as women and as artists. 
Yeah, it's certainly a lot of women have had a bit of a raw deal, not just at the time that they were painting, but obviously even now uh, trying to, I guess, reassert their importance uh, in an artistic mm. sense. And we have seen uh, a number of great shows, as you mentioned. Another that has a lot of buzz or has had a lot of buzz around it um, is the show that was recently on at the gallery in South Australia, uh, Clarice Beckett, mm. The Present Moment, which is really interesting to see people discover or rediscover her work and just how cutting edge that was. Mm. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, uh, the thing is, I think for women, they they need champions often. I mean, any artist mm. does and any art movement does, but women particularly need to be championed. And, of course, uh, Clarice Beckett was by Rosalind Hollenrake from the 1970s on. Rosalind has been relentlessly <laughs> promoting and presenting uh, Clarice Beckett, and this is a wonderful thing because to see this huge exhibition is to realise her significance. And, you know, when I was um, putting that exhibition together back in 1975 and I was touring the country selecting works, and so many times people would say to me, well, who's going to be in this exhibition of women artists? I mean, well, there's Margaret Preston and there's Grace Collins and Smith, but who else is there? Mm. And I'd say, oh, what about Jane Sutherland? What about Clarice Beckett? What about Hilary Nicholas? What about Nora Heisman? And they just hadn't heard of these names. And they just they just looked blankly at me. But in fact, when the exhibition was up and when the book came out, then people could see this kind of vast treasure trove of cultural history that was being hidden and ignored. Yes, and in some cases, including the example of Clarice, unfortunately uh, their work or some of their work was not preserved in the best way possible. So I know that around half of Clarice's work was lost because it was out in a shed in a paddock and uh, one side of the shed was exposed to the weather. So there are examples where unfortunately some of these great, great works are lost and then fortunately others have rescued the remaining uh, works and, as you say, championed them with not just uh, art historians but obviously art collectors and galleries and the general mm. public to try and get this traction that we're finally uh, seeing in greater volume. But obviously having pioneers like yourself and others who have been pushing for this for so long, um, surely it, it gives you some, I guess, in more pleasure to see that it's continuing and picking up steam. Yes, look, I'm delighted about what's happening. I mean, I remember feeling a little bit despondent about the Know My Name exhibition. It was a huge, you know, the great catalogue for it. There's a big conference, which we did virtually. It, it just made me a little bit despondent, thinking, oh, you know, are we doing, what do we have to do this again? But, look, I think we just have to do this again. And, look, maybe in 50 years it'll all have to happen all over again and various women will be once again rediscovered. Because a lot of the women artists I put in that that exhibition in 1975. I mean, their works weren't hanging on the walls of the galleries. Their works were hanging in the stacks, which is where, you know, things go when pe not many people are interested in it. But then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, that if the work isn't there, it isn't visible, it's not being championed by a curator, it's not being researched by an art historian, it's not being placed in its time, then it's going to get, um, you know, the, the mostly white, mostly male pantheon, then it, it's not going to get an entry to that.
Yeah, that's absolutely true. Well, I know that there are a number of works in the stacks, as you say, in our national galleries that really deserve to be hung, including some of those by Clarice and, of course, Joy and a number of other great women. So it would be good to see, as you say, that we might move on from the whole all these women, you know, group shows and maybe we can have women actually Mm. being included in the shows Mm. about certain movements alongside their male counterparts. And look, one of the the pitfalls for women artists, particularly for, say, Clarice Beckett's generation and and also for Grace Cossington-Smith, who was brilliantly sort of discovered by by Daniel Thomas, a very important curator in the 1970s, um, they they just don't seem to gain that attention. And uh, also they're seen as amateurs. You know, this has yeah. been a really big problem for women, you know. And the, uh, many women of that generation were, they were going to art school. They were having exhibitions. They were travelling to Paris and they were studying. But um, then they, if things went a little bit quiet in their careers, well, you know, Clarice Beckett could only pay at a certain time each day when her parents didn't require her to be uh, their carer. Um, Grace Cossington-Smith, one of the great Australian artists, lived, you know, in sort of isolation in suburbia and everybody just thought she was a sort of quaint little amateur painter until, you know, a huge exhibition proved that she was bloody brilliant. (laughs) She was and she still is. I know a lot of people are inspired when they see her work today. Um, Janine, you've Mm. done a really beautiful job with this book, My Forests, and I know that I, I know we're not meant to book a ju- uh, judge a book by its cover, but if you did, you'd think this book is really wonderful because the cover is stunning. <laughs> and if you wave it's it, amazing. it's amazing. The yeah, there's this gold foiled, um, really beautiful shimmer. Glistening. Yeah, perfectly said. And um, of the gum trees, gum leaves, and uh, of a gum tree, it's just so beautiful to see and um, very. Yes, yeah, stunning. And I guess it's a great entry point into this book. And um, I was just picked a, a certain chapter that I saw um, about autumn, given that we are in autumn and it seems like this mm-hmm. is one of the great seasons to appreciate trees because they have, mm. some of them have a great transformation. And, uh, and you talk about the fact that autumn is spectacular in Melbourne, uh, we're famous for it, and you talk about the leaves of the liquid amber glow with colours so vivid it seems that they're on fire, burnished gold and tangerine, hot bite, bright green, scarlet and bloody burgundy, and all that can happen on one tree. I mean, I wonder if you could share with us what this book is about, but also, you know, using this example and this chapter as an example to illuminate some of these wonderful stories that you have um, and relationships with trees? Yeah, uh, uh, the book begins in in my home suburb of of Elwood. And the reason it starts there is because, you know, I'm not a country girl. I grew up in suburbia like most of us. I live in suburbia like most of us. And I wanted to look at the the trees that were around me and understand their histories. Um, My previous book to this was um, Nest, The Art of Birds. And I think that kind of painstaking and very rewarding process of looking at birds' nests and looking at the trees kind of created a lovely frame for me. And so this book is about, it starts off with the 
trees that are around you, I mean, not only wonderful um, native trees like the sugar gum and the uh, river red gum, but also the trees that are probably in your street, like, you know, the London plain or the silver birch or a cypress or, you know, the trees that are around you. And, yeah, I wanted to tell the stories of the trees because they're, they're fascinating stories. And um, each chapter devotes itself to some particular um sort of narrative, like a meandering sort of narrative. It just, you've got to, I take you on a little bit of a wander, you know, you kind of wander through things and and find out stories and histories, you know, as you go along. And there are beautiful and wonderful stories and there are very uh, sad and tragic stories about trees, um, like the, the chapter on trees as victims. Uh, and I look at the way uh, the colonialists, when they arrived in uh, in Australia, began just relentlessly cutting down every tree they possibly could lay their hands on or lay their axe on. Yeah. Uh, so you have this uh, deforestation, and what that means, of course, is it changed um, it changed the land, it changed the climate of of the landscape, and of course. Uh, the other thing that, to me, this symbolised was the erasure or the attempted erasure of Indigenous people from this land. You know, they become, if you like, the trees, the trees that are being, you know, cut down and pushed away and, and not just ignored but, you know, like really uh, savagely kind of uh, attacked is a very unhappy and similar situation, particularly with the big trees like the mountain ash and the river red gums. I mean, they were just almost annihilated by um, people who mm. first, uh, you know, those of us who arrived only recently, you know, who didn't want to pay any attention to the people who've been living here for 60,000 years. And there are some amazing photographs that I reproduce in the book. I mean, one is a, an amazing photograph of uh, a group of uh, Aboriginal men at Framlingham, which was a place where people were sort of... Um, herded Aboriginal people were made to stay and they're, they're all sitting, all these men, these fabulous men, they look like they're dressed in European clothes but they're just warriors, I mean they're really, their presence is just incredible and they're all sitting on a felled eucalypt you know, I mean the, the sort of the metaphor there that you know, that they, they're sort of to some degree sharing the fate of the tree um, is, is very disturbing Mm, yeah, I'm looking at that photograph now and it's uh, it's absolutely correct. Mm. There's so much presence in there. And also a number of other photographs, as you mentioned, I know that you say the State Library of Victoria has an excellent collection of prints and paintings which document the relentless tree-felling yeah. mission of the colonialists. And um, one of the, the images that stood out to me as well was the mammoth tree at Foster in South Gippsland from 1906, which, yeah. I mean, yeah, it is very striking given the size. The it's width. an extraordinary photograph. It's, it's I think, you know, one of the biggest tree stumps or it must have been one of the biggest trees you could ever in your life see because it now houses a man and his horse who were sort of leaning out of this tree, which is utterly vast, you know, and it's a, it's a shocking image. It's so shocking. It's, it's sort of surreal. And yet this was a, an image that was kind of popular, you know. This was seen as, you know, man's triumph over nature, and it's just tragic. And we're still paying the price for that, you know, in this country with climate change. We're still paying that price. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a very dangerous mindset to have and it's something that has existed for the entire time that uh, – colonialists and settlers have come to Australia and taken over what wasn't theirs. And another photograph that really highlights this idea and also, you know, is quite sad to see is um, a photograph of a tree stump being used as a symbolic prop in some of these 19th century studio portraits of uh, Indigenous peoples. And it, um, you know, I mean, looking at it, I don't really know what to say, but there's just so much in that one photograph in terms of the symbolism and the, um, you know, the overlays of racism and history. Mm. Yes, well, the tree stump, the, the felled tree, uh, becomes, uh, it's included in photographs and in prints and in all sorts of uh, images in the 19th century and becomes a symbol for white sovereignty. Um, there's an image in the book of, uh, it's a print of Ned Kelly and uh, not really like Ned Kelly at all. He looks like a sort of English lord and he's leaning on a tree stump. You know, so the tree stump becomes this, you know, really horrible, um, well, to our to our contemporary mind, a really ghastly sort of reminder of what was done to Indigenous people and what was done to nature itself. And this was, yeah, this was the symbol of white sovereignty. This is the symbol of we can do what we like with nature. We can just chop all the trees down and we just don't care. Mm. I know it's um, it certainly is quite stark and it's great to see also a number of cultures captured in this book, including India, including uh, Italy, where in one of these chapters, which I believe is called Knowing Trees, and you talk about uh, the olive tree, which you gaze at um, for a very long time at this beautiful looking, um, well, there are multiple of them, olive trees in Tuscany. Mm. Uh, as an example, a really lovely photograph there to kind of uh, depict the type of beauty that you can get from looking at an olive tree. But I had even noticed in modern day council planning that a lot of councils have been putting in olive trees onto streets. So it's uh, kind of becoming quite common, I guess, here in Melbourne, but also more broadly in Victoria, that um, the beauty of the olive tree is kind of on the street. That's nice. I didn't know that. I think mm. that's a really good idea because a lot of the um, uh, non-native trees that get planted, uh, say like the London Plain in, in Elwood, we've got all the streets are full of London Plain trees, uh, which are beautiful trees, and a lot of the time they're <laughs> destroying our sewers. You know, they get into the sewer pipes and they just tear everything apart. So uh, there's a lot of... Um, I don't know, thoughtlessness about, you know, what is the kind of tree that will work here? What's the tree that's going to be hardy enough to live in a city? And what's the tree that's going to survive? And all of these trees have wonderful, you know, stories. I mean, the olive tree, of course, is famous in, in some ways because of uh, Gethsemane, the garden where uh, Christ went before he was uh, taken off and, and then, well, uh, tortured before he was uh, nailed to a cross, another tree. So there are interesting stories about trees all through literature. And, uh, yeah, Gethsemane was a, a place of solace and nature is, is solace and that was solace for, for him before he was uh, arrested and taken off and, you know, tortured and then killed. So... Uh, and the olive tree, of course, provides us with food. You know, it provides us with our one of the main staples of, of our cooking, which is olive oil. 
And mm. uh, when we were living in Tuscany, it was marvellous because we used to we used to harvest our own olives. We'd like go up the trees in um, on ladders, and then we'd take them to a local um, olive press, which was available to all the people in the local district. And you could press your own olives and take them home and eat them, and they were like delicious oil. So. Um, yeah, trees are just a part of our lives in so many ways. Mm. Well, I remembered also reading a couple of chapters towards the end of the book about uh, sentience and also trees as witnesses. Um, and maybe we'll go for the witnesses because I know that uh, a lot of people would be familiar with the t- sentience discussion, but I did also find your uh, encounter with a gruff botanist very entertaining. Um, but the, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and quite tense at times, it seems. Um, but I, it did remind me, trees as witnesses, because you do uh, highlight that there is a, a very particular tree uh, in Nuremberg at the Nazi Party rally grounds where um, mm. Hitler announced the final solution of the Jewish people and that trees, even in the Holocaust, many trees witnessed serious atrocities including in um east Mm. eastern europe uh where a number of people were killed in these uh, forests by the death squads that were there roaming around eastern Mm. europe so it seems like that Mm. um trees as witness concept is a really interesting one yes i went to the um uh, nazi party rally grounds at nuremberg part of a project on um artists and, and politics, which is sort of ongoing. And when I got there, I, look, I was so devastated and horrified by the whole thing. <laughs> I just went lying on the grass near the lakes, but thinking, how can I cope with this? And I thought, well, I'll, I'll start. I didn't mean to take a whole series of photographs. So I, I began taking photographs to kind of find some nuances in that vast space, which is just so redolent with sort of horror. Um, and the buildings are massive and, you know, there's all this architecture that's just a really just a terrifying embodiment of, of, uh, of Nazism. And, yeah, I, I took all these images of nature and I thought, oh, that's a kind of response. That's my response. I'm getting some distance by focusing on the natural world. And then when I got home and worked on the photographs, particularly the one that's um, depicted in the book, which I thought, oh, these beautiful trees, look how elegant they are, you know. And I got home and I looked at the trees and they looked like they looked like shadowy conspirators, you know. And I realised that the whole place was drenched, you know, um, with such such terrible history that even the natural world could not combat that, you know. It was poisoned, the whole the whole place is poisoned. Mm. And it shows, you know, that interplay and interaction between humans and trees. And obviously, you know, the point of this book is to bring in mythology and storytelling and art and uh, our present day history and experiences. So uh, it's just such a really interesting entry point to the book. Um, I know that we're running out of time, Janine, but is there anything that you, I guess, um, were not aware of before you undertook this journey that you wanted to share briefly in the minute that we've got left? So much. Um, I've made friends with the sugar gum, (laughs) (laughs) a eucalypt that lives not far from my home. We share the same address and it's part of my um, community of trees. And I talk about doing this kind of little 
meditation come encounter with the sugar gum. It was quite playful. And I still, you know, I still visit that tree. You know, I spend a bit of time every couple of days with that tree. And uh, it it does provide solace. It does provide focus and, and grounding. You know, you can feel it. It's a thing to do. That's why we love them. Exactly. And I know there's a great number of parks and wonderful areas within the city of Melbourne and beyond that we can visit Mm. to have this commune with nature and even obviously more further out, there's some stunning places as well. Janine, I hope people can pick up this book, which uh, there's no way that we could possibly cover all the topics. As you say, it is a meander and a wonderful wander through some beautiful trees and also the accompanying culture that is surrounded and intertwined with these trees so uh, congratulations on this book and thank you so much for sharing a little bit of what you've uncovered and uh, learned and experienced oh thank you amy Uh, it was really great to talk thanks very much i'm amy mullins and you've been listening to the uncommon sense podcast Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.